So we're going to look at the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, the, the model prayer that the Lord gave us. I know that our reading for today is from uh, Luke 11, where we have Luke's uh, record of it, but I, I'm going to work from Matthew, from Matthew 6, and you may like to just turn over there to, to Matthew 6. And I want to start by looking at the context in which the Lord gives this, gives this prayer. He talks about not being, this is Matthew 6, say verse, uh, verse 5, he says, don't be like the, the hypocrites, who, the Pharisees he means, who love to pray publicly, but pray secretly, quietly. Verse 7, and when you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do, as the Gentiles do. And it's interesting that he starts off by saying, don't pray like the Pharisees do, in verse 5. And then he says, verse 7, don't pray like the Gentiles do, like the pagans as if he's saying that really all those Pharisees were doing in their prayers on the corners of the streets and in the synagogues was really just a form of, of paganism. He says, don't use vain repetitions and don't think that you'll be heard because of how much you speak. And although we may consider that we are neither pagans nor Pharisees, in fact, prayer can very easily get into a rut whereby we're coming out with the same old phrases. And whilst it may not appear to be the, the vain repetitions of, uh, say, Catholics running off <coughs> the uh, Ave Maria and that kind of thing, in essence, maybe, it cannot be that different, can it? If we just keep on coming out with the same old, same old phrases, rushing through prayer, using the same form of words without putting meaning into those words, and even congratulating ourselves that, you know, I managed to pray for five minutes or ten minutes. Um, we, we can very easily, in essence, get into the same situation as these people were in, both the Gentiles and the, and the Pharisees, who were, of course, members of God's people at that time. They were, if you like, the equivalent of being in the body of Christ today. And yet he, the Lord says that basically they were just like the, like the Gentiles, like all kind of Eastern religions just mouthing off of the same old words, reading a prayer, as it were, rather than putting meaning into words. And so he gives us this prayer, which on the surface may appear to be very simple. But I want to suggest that actually each phrase is very difficult to pray. If you really put meaning into those words. And the fact that the Lord uses a number of these phrases in his prayers in Gethsemane, which I suppose was the, the hardest prayers perhaps that have ever been prayed from earth to heaven, I think that indicates of itself, as the hymn says, not for ease that prayer shall be. That there is a struggle in, in prayer, if it's, if it's real prayer. And he talks in verse 8, just immediately before he gives the Lord's Prayer, he says, your father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. So I think he gives this prayer in response to the idea that prayer is a firing off a list of requests to God. Give me this, give me that, and the other, right now. And he's answering that, really, the idea of, thinking that prayer is a list of requests, by giving us the prayer that he would like us to pray. And just, just bear that in mind. Well, what's the first word, in English anyway, in 
in the prayer, our, our Father, who is in heaven. Straight away, the idea is that I am not alone. He's trying to move us away from the idea of praying to God out of, as it were, spiritual selfishness. I want this, I want that, here's my prayer, and it's like a sort of, well, I, I might get something out of all that stuff that I, that I ask God. A sort of uh, insurance policy, as it were, a sort of a, a hedging bet. But straight off, he says, when you are going to pray, go on your own into your room. If you're reading from the uh, AV, you'll see in verse 6, he says, when thou, that's you singular, when you pray on your own, go into your room and shut thy door, your singular door, and pray to thy father, your singular father, and thy father will reward thee openly. So this prayer is intended as a personal prayer. And yet it begins, our Father. It's as if that in our personal prayers, we are to begin by recognising that I am part of a wider community of believers. And I am not the only person who is praying to the Father, to my Father. He says, pray to thy Father, verse 6, your singular Father. But then he says, but actually when you pray, you should say, our Father. Remember that you are not alone, that you don't have a, a relationship with God and he doesn't have a relationship with anybody else. He is in relationship with others. You, with all your requests and all your needs, are not alone. Okay, our Father who is in heaven. In the Old Testament, we read it several times when people started to pray, they lifted up their eyes to heaven at the start of their prayer. And that's a quite a profound thought that, you know, do we have that clearness of conscience to be able to do that, to actually pray with your eyes looking up to heaven? Remembering, of course, the, uh, the sinner who is commended who would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but with belief in forgiveness and God's grace and our status in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a challenge to us. Can we pray like that, lifting up our eyes to heaven, as David did, as Daniel did, um, and as we read several times, the Lord Jesus doing. But I, I think another reason why they lifted up their eyes to heaven was simply to focus themselves on the idea that I, here on earth, am praying to God who is in heaven. Now, there is the idea around that God is spirit in the sense that he is a sort of an ether, a kind of a, a wisp of spirit, of like a big cloud or something, uh, that is sort of everywhere, and that there is no personal God. Now we're under the tyranny of words here, but I would urge you to see that God is for real, that he exists in a personal form. And I know a lot of people disagree with me. And may call it primitive, may say it's all an anthropomorphism that is talking about God as if he's a man when he isn't. And I, I hear all that, and I'm aware of all that. But in the end, in the final end, God is a personal being. And I, for one, find it impossible to imagine a relationship 
with someone or something that is not personal in that sense. How can you pray to a God who is a cloud? You can pray to a God who is your Father, in whose image and likeness you have been created. And I think the Lord is just focusing us on that. When you pray, don't rush in, as it were, but just remember that you are on earth and your words now are going to be heard by this personal God in heaven. Now he's just said, don't be like the heathen, uh, like the Gentiles, and uh, think that you'll be heard for your much speaking. But instead you should say, our Father who is in heaven. Now he's alluding there to Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2. God is in heaven and you upon earth. Therefore, the A.V. says, let thy words be few. But that Hebrew word translated few is normally translated little. It's not like, oh, well, keep your prayers short. That's not the idea. Uh, Because God is in heaven and you are upon earth, therefore let your words be little, as in small and and humble and to the point. Not going to bed and and cuddling yourself up in bed uh, and all nice and warm and drifting off into some sort of half prayer and the next, you know, it's the morning and the alarm clock's going and, and that was your prayer. Be concise and to the point. Put meaning into your words. Now, Nehemiah and Solomon both started their major prayers with a reference to this fact that God really is there in heaven. And we're invited to see the Lord Jesus seated at God's right hand and So many times, uh, at least nine times in the New Testament, Paul talks about that, if you uh, include Hebrews. Uh, God has Jesus seated at his right hand. Now, you know, I don't want to push this uh, too literally, but the point is that God is there, and the Lord Jesus is there as personal beings. And the Son of God is mediating the prayers that, that we offer. In passing, you remember when Stephen is about to die, it's Acts 7.56, he sees heaven opened and he sees the Lord Jesus standing at God's right hand, even though, as I say, nine times in the New Testament we're told that he has sat down. Unlike the Jewish high priest who stood, Stephen saw the Lord Jesus standing at God's right hand. And I I think that is to show that although he is there, seated as it were, at God's right hand, he can feel the passion and the urgency of human situations here on earth, as it was when Stephen is being stoned to death. And in that passion of mediation, he can stand and does stand. So then our prayers are serious. And we need to realise that. And I think, of course, what you're going to pray for before you ask it, because you might just get it. And uh, we shouldn't be, of course, thinking in terms of, well, I might just get it. Um, We should be praying the prayer of faith, the the little prayer, as Ecclesiastes says, the the short and to the point thought-out prayer, just like they had to prepare the incense before they offered it. In faith that... I will receive this and to act and feel as if we shall. 
So the prayer, I think, is in this context, in Matthew anyway, it's presented in the context of, look, God knows all the needs that you have, therefore, in this manner, therefore, you should pray. And after he's given the Lord's Prayer, later on in Matthew 6 and 32 to 34, your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things, so seek you first his kingdom. And that's really repeating what the Lord's Prayer is saying. Because you've got all these needs, then pray to God, our Father, who really is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. As if the, the focus should be upon God's kingdom. You've got all these requests, because you have all these needs, the Lord says, so therefore pray for the kingdom to come. That is the request that he, he says we should make. And I think you can read the Lord's Prayer, no, you can read it in a number of ways, but I, I think you could read every clause in this prayer as somehow requesting for the kingdom to come. For example, hallowed be, be thy name. Well, you could say that that just is like, yep, I praise you, Lord. And yes, it can be that. Hallowed or sanctified be your name. Like a number of these clauses, it uses a, an aorist tense that implies that it will be accomplished as a, a one-time act. In other words, please hallow or glorify your name at one point, one specific point in the future. And that specific point, when God's name will be fully glorified and sanctified, is obviously in the kingdom, because thine is the kingdom. Verse 13, the power and the glory forever. So, we have all our needs, emotional needs, all kind of needs, material needs, and the ultimate answer to these things is in the coming of the kingdom. You can read it another way, that the name of God is essentially his characteristics. You remember when he declares his name to Moses in Exodus, the angel, it appears an angel, uh, comes before Moses and declares the name Yahweh, Yahweh, a God full of grace, forgiveness, judgment, justice, love, kindness, etc., patience. So God's name is his characteristics. You could be say, he could be uh, saying also, well, you've got all your needs, and so you come to God in prayer, and you just ask that his characteristics will be worked out in your life. Your kingdom come. Well, yes, it is a request for the Lord Jesus to return from heaven, establish God's kingdom here on earth. But, in a sense, the principles of God's kingdom should be breaking out into our lives right now. When Jesus says, you have eternal life, he doesn't mean you will not die. We, we do die. But we have the life eternal in the sense that we can live the kind of life we will live eternally in the kingdom right now. But you have to pray that that will be the case because that's an incredibly high challenge. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Again, there's this aorist tense here, which implies to me there is one specific, one-off, one-time fulfilment that we're asking for. May your will come about at one specific point in time. And that ultimately is in the coming of the kingdom. So then, 
This is a, hallowed be your name, your will be done. These are really a request for action rather than simply expressing praise to God. Now I said earlier that parts of this prayer are prayed by the Lord in, in Gethsemane. And these are clear examples when he says, not my will, but your will be done. And that great pause that could have taken minutes, many minutes, because it was long enough for the disciples to fall asleep. Father, glorify your name. This is how difficult it is to really pray this prayer. The Lord Jesus, facing death right in the face, could say, okay, take the cup away, but your will be done, and Father, glorify your name. May all the principles connected with you be glorified in me if I have to die at this time. May it be that it works out that way to your glory. If it's something less dramatic, if it's not facing death in the face, if it's facing loss of employment, if it's facing the loss of a family member who's moving away somewhere, all sorts of things that we face, we put, of course, our request to God, as Jesus did in Gethsemane, but your will be done, and Father, glorify your name. And then perhaps one of the most difficult phrases to pray Give us this day our daily bread. Of course, in sort of first century Palestine, illiterate, poverty-stricken peasants, maybe it had some meaning. They didn't have any food for tomorrow, so please give us today the bread for today, implying, incidentally, that Jesus intended this prayer to be prayed in the morning. And to start each day with the Praying this prayer, the essence of it, is, uh, is important. But again, this is a, a strange Greek phrase. It's really hard to translate and everyone's got their different take on it. But before we, we go there into a bit more detail, uh, let's just stop and think. Most of us know that we have a refrigerator at home with food in it for several days. And we also have money to buy food for quite a bit of time in the future. But we're living in a world where people are more and more worried about providing financial security for their future. The problems we're reading about with with pensions that governments in the Western world can't continue paying uh, pensions as they have been, that in the end, people are going to be left, every person looking after themselves, Retirement plans, very difficult to, to, to make a plan. The idea is save up your money now, that's the bottom line, whether you put it in a pension plan or whether you put it in your, in your piggy bank un, under your bed. Save up your money now or buy something with it uh, that's going to be useful later so that you can survive your old age. But give us this day our daily bread. It's so hard to pray that in our context today. That I believe you, Father, will provide for me every day, if I ask you, food. Now, that's a real challenge. But I I said that the uh, Greek phrase there is very difficult. I think, I think I'm right in saying that 
the idea really is give us today, give us right now the bread or the food of tomorrow now in that case this would connect with an idea of it was common in ancient Judaism uh, the idea of machar uh, that the great tomorrow is, is the kingdom of God and that eating bread ultimately uh, is to be fulfilled in God's kingdom and Jesus uh, alluded to that when he talked about us sharing food together at the same table in his kingdom and I think the Lord is also alluding to Israel in the wilderness who of course would give them every day just enough food, bread, manna and yet they were told when they first had it in the morning, that is to mother, you should be filled with bread and that was understood pretty widely in uh, Judaism and it still is uh, today as speaking about the, the coming of Messiah's kingdom that in the morning, tomorrow, you shall be filled with bread and so we are asked, therefore, with all our needs as he says, again the context in verse 7 you come with all your needs to God and you pray this prayer and you ask to be given the bread of tomorrow that is the kingdom that in all your worries about however you're going to survive above all Father I want to eat bread in the kingdom now as I say that's the, the, the future aspect that I think the Lord is, is working in here but of course on a practical level as I say the implications are astounding that we should be prepared to live in faith that God gives us enough food every day and David said he had never seen the seed of the righteous begging bread and although well this may be a bit controversial because people could argue with this but I would say that in many years of, of travelling around amongst the, the poorer sections of this world I don't think I don't think I have ever seen a true Christian someone who is in Christ actually without enough food to eat every day come right up to the edge um, but somehow it has been provided it may not have been very really good food but God will preserve us and this was of course the challenge to Israel in the wilderness that God will look after you he will feed you now when they tried to gather lots of manna so that they would have enough for the next day it went mouldy, it went off and I'm sure the Lord must have all this in mind but we should be satisfied with his promise to provide every day and if you can believe that then you can get on with living your life to his glory without unduly worrying about all these material things but then what are we to do we who, who have food at home and food for many days to come and apparently the resources to buy food for many weeks to come we are still to pray this prayer we are not to say oh, yeah, that, that bit doesn't yet uh, apply to me I think we should still ask for that food even though we have it and it reminds me of a passage in Zechariah 10 verse 1 ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain you could say well it's already the rainy season it's the latter rain the rain's coming yeah okay but ask God for it and don't just expect that it's going to come 
Okay, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Again, very difficult to pray. We know the Lord's clear teaching. Uh, Luke 6, uh, 37, he talks about our present forgiveness as being the basis for our future judgment. Makes it really clear. If you, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And so we are to say this to God in prayer. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Now, you can't just rattle that off. Well, you can rattle it off, but if you're going to pray it seriously, you've really got to think about that before you say that. Because you're telling God, I know this is the basis for my forgiveness, but please forgive me because I have forgiven those who have sinned against me. In one sense, you could look at all the people who have sinned against you and think, wow, great, that's a wonderful opportunity now. Now I've got, I can forgive them so that you know, I can be sure of forgiveness. But again, we have this uh, airless construction there. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. It does seem to imply, forgive me at a specific point in time, once and for all, just one time, as I have forgiven those who sin against me. Now, what time could that be? Well, again, it must be, surely, the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus. As if we're saying, when I stand before you, Father, in the person of your Son, in the last day, forgive me, once and for all, in that day, all my sins, as I in this life have forgiven those who sin against me. So then, really... Our coming before the throne of grace now in prayer is in a sense a foretaste of the day of judgment. Our coming before his throne in the last day. We're told that we can come boldly before the throne of grace in prayer right now. And that's a very similar sort of idea to us coming before the throne of grace unashamed in the last day. So really, when we pray, particularly when we pray this prayer, we are having a foretaste of the Day of Judgment. Then, lead us not into temptation, verse 13 of Matthew 6, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, of course, there's the whole thing, well, didn't God lead Abraham into testing, did not God test Abraham? He led him in a sense into temptation. Did not the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness, into a place of temptation? James 1, God does not tempt any man, we're tempted by our own internal uh, processes. How are we to square this with lead us not into temptation? Well, I, you know, it can be squared. One can say, well, um, God operates a downward spiral whereby if someone is weak their weakness leads them into more temptation uh, and then if they fail that then they're led into yet more and God is, if you like, the dynamic in that spiral just as he's the dynamic in the upward spiral as well so you, you could read it like that that God is not passive to human sin that if, if we sin then we let ourselves in for even more temptation and Jesus is saying we should ask God but he doesn't do that with us. And then, you know, James 1 and say, yeah, well, 
what James 1 is saying is that temptation is not from God, it is from our own internal uh, desires that God may lead you into a situation, uh, but the actual process of temptation is internal. And uh, yeah, I can go along with that, but I would say that I'm, I don't know, 80% happy with that, but not completely. I think you know what I mean. You read the Bible, you try to understand, try to get to grips with some of the things, uh, matters of interpretation, and you can say, well, yes, but I'm not completely happy with that. I don't see a better option, so I'll go with that. But there is a question mark in the, in the margin of my Bible and in my, in my, own, heart, <coughs> my own heart about that. And uh, this is how I am with this whole thing. Lead us not into temptation. But you remember that I, I said that I think that every clause in the prayer is relevant in some, in some way to the last days. To the last day, rather, really, when Jesus stands on earth and, and at his second coming. Now, this word translated temptation or trial is pyrasmos. Pyrasmos. Lead us not into pyrasmos, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus uses this again in Revelation 3 verse 10, when he says that if we hold his word now, he will, or keep his word now, he will keep us from the hour of trial, the hour of pyrasmos, which is coming on the whole world. You could read this as a request that we will be preserved from the final trial, the final pyrasmos, the hour of trial, the hour of pyrasmos, which is to come on the whole world. Let's not kid ourselves, it's very clear from the Bible, squirm around it as we wish, uh, it's very clear that in the immediate run-up to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth, there is going to be an hour of trial, an hour of pyrasmos, which is to come upon the whole earth. Now, it may be relatively short, in the sense that, bringing another scripture into, into play, it will be like the days of Sodom, everybody looking after themselves, having a good time, it will be like the situation just before the rain started to fall, at the time of the flood, but in another sense, there is going to be an hour of a, a brief moment of pyrasmos, of trial and temptation. Why? I think it is to enable the weak amongst the ecclesia, amongst the believers, to get a grip and to throw themselves 100% upon the Lord. But, for those who have kept his word as they should have done, they will be preserved from it. You remember that passage in Isaiah at the end of 26 there, when he, he talks about, Come my people, enter into your chambers, until this tribulation is overpassed. This, uh, as the Septuagint says, this pyrasmos. So, you could read this, lead us not into temptation, lead us not into the hour of trial in the last day. May we not have to go through that but deliver us from the evil one, from the, uh, the beast system of the last days. That I, I find the only uh, interpretation that I feel 100% happy with. Because as I say, the idea of please do not lead me into temptation, in the sense that we understand temptation, um, 
Well, God does not, in one sense, do that. Um, well, I gave my take on that earlier, but it is a difficult one. But in Mark 13, 19 and 20, the Lord says that the days of that final tribulation, again it's Pilasmos, translated temptation here, uh, the days of that final tribulation, Pilasmos, will be shortened for the sake of the, of the elect, for the sake of their prayers, as I understand it. So there will be this time of testing, this time of, of trial, of, of temptation, uh, that's not the best translation, I don't think, this time of trial which is to come. And it's prefigured, really, when the disciples are in Gethsemane with the Lord Jesus, and he says, pray that you do not enter into temptation. That's Mark 14, 38. Pilasmos. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. He's clearly saying, pray the prayer that I taught you. Again, it all came out, both for them and for Jesus, uh, in Gethsemane. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. The closing point really is that there you are, you come with all your needs and with all your issues. As he says, God, verse 8, God knows what you need before you ask him, so pray like this and end up thinking about the eternity of God's kingdom. Because that is what puts all our requests and our needs in its perfect context. So then, if we are to pray this prayer with meaning, if we are to put meaning into words here, and not just rattle it off, it's extremely difficult. And yet, having prayed it properly, we rise from our knees, and I do incidentally uh, encourage you to pray on your knees. I am eternally grateful. I mean, I will be eternally grateful to my dear, my dear mother, who I love dearly, who taught me to pray as a little, little boy on my knees. Um, we rise from our knees, grateful that we have that eternity in front of us. And we rise from our knees sure that we have forgiven others because we have just said to God forgive me as I have forgiven others. We rise from our knees having refocused ourselves upon that final reality which is the coming of God's kingdom.